welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Well, good morning, Covenant. So good to see you. If you're a guest with us, my name is Joel, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm delighted to be able to open God's Word for you this morning. We are in the final three weeks, if you can believe that, of a 12-week series taking the minor prophets, that latter portion of the Old Testament that even in the church, sometimes we blow right past it and ignore it. I hope that you have discovered, as I have, the number of nuggets, the the deep spiritual truth that we can find in the wisdom uh, and in the boldness of these men as they have called us to repent and to do so in various ways. That's why the the title of this message or this series has been turned. That's what repentance means. It means I'm walking in one direction, moving in one direction, thinking in one way, and I'm beginning to turn and think in another way, move in another way, behave differently. These 12 men are calling us to repent in 12 different ways. We're coming down to the final three weeks of this, and today we're going to look at the oldest of those men, and that's significant. We're going to talk about age a little bit today. I hope nobody's going to be offended when we're done, but how does this man expect us to do this, the oldest of these men? One of the things we're going to see in Haggai is the benefit that God's people can have from what we call lived experience. Right? We talk about that sometimes with regard to race, that certain of our minority brothers have a lived experience that's different than mine. And that's important to, to learn that and to understand that. There are people at different socioeconomic levels that have a different lived experience than some of the rest of us, and we need to listen to that. This is another lived experience, and it's incredibly important because we're going to miss something very beneficial to us if we don't grasp this. There's nothing quite so powerful sometimes as an individual who hadn't just read a history book but has actually lived through the history. Somebody who can look at you and look at me and say, I've been there. That's Haggai. I think about the, uh, the U.S. Holocaust Museum. In 1993, it opened up, and for roughly the last three decades, it's enshrined this terrible moment in Western history, a moment when our Jewish neighbors were faced with almost certain near annihilation. We, have as a church family, have toured that facility together with our, our friends and neighbors at Addis Israel Synagogue. And, and I mean, every, absolutely everything about it, from the educational. You, you don't start your day depressed and go visit that institution. Uh, it, it will just get worse. And, and that really is the intent. I mean, everything from the educational exhibits, archived film that contains, frankly, some just X-rated stuff, just graphic things that actually one of those rare exceptions when we need to look with our eyes, we need to be reminded of of that horror, but probably the, the most um, pungent is this room full of shoes. You, you wouldn't think that would affect you emotionally, but these, you'll discover, are the shoes that were removed from the feet of the victims immediately before they were led into an execution chamber. And I'll tell you, the smell, you, you just never forget that. And every bit of that, all those exhibits, they're designed to evoke precisely the kind of emotion that you will, if you're human, feel when you walk out of that place. But here's the best part of the Holocaust Museum. It's not the exhibits. Our Jewish neighbors uh, are there. It's, so it's the survivors themselves 
For about 30 years, the people that have actually lived through that horrible moment in history have been deeply engaged in the, the work of the museum, and they get engaged with visitors, and they, they share their personal stories. And even after three decades, with many of them passed away, but we still have a lot of them right here that we can still learn from and benefit from their wisdom, many who are still with us. David Baer is one of those who, say, who can say, I was there. He was born on September 12th, 1922. And no, your math is not wrong. If he lives to this September, he'll be 101. His family owned a shoe store until the Nazis invaded Poland. And so he ended up living in a ghetto until he was smuggled away to save his life as a child because his family was taken by the Gestapo and eventually transported to a killing center. He never saw them again. He's still there. He tells his story, and he can say with integrity, I was there, I've been there. Ralph Barretts is another, born December 5th, 1939 in the Netherlands. Now, Mr. Barretts was already on the run. I mean, by the time he was born, his family was already running from Nazi forces. And they, uh, by the time, really, before he could walk, the Nazis had already invaded the area where he and his family were staying as refugees. And so he spent his entire childhood on the run, from this enemy army. And then there's Ruth Cohen, born April 20th, 1930 in Czechoslovakia, where she and her family would live until the Nazis entirely dismantled that country in 1939, eventually taking she and her loved ones to a place whose name haunts any of us that are even remotely familiar with that period of history, a concentration camp named Auschwitz. And so when you're around people like that, it just does something to you, doesn't it? You can look at an exhibit and it can evoke a certain kind of emotion or a, a certain kind of response, but you can also talk to a person who was there, standing in the middle of it, and there's just something, is there not, about their mere presence that says something to you. Just being there, nothing quite as imposing as someone who can say, I was there in that solemn moment. Well, that's the description of the prophet Haggai. Because Haggai's story starts in a moment prior to this prophecy and prior to a moment when, when, frankly, many people who read this prophecy would have been born. We can, thankfully, still read about it today in 2 Kings 25. We read in verse 8, in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he burned the house of the Lord. Now, that was an event that took place in 587 B.C. After that event, God's people are enslaved. They are displaced. They're made to live in a foreign land for the next 70 years. Fast forward now six decades, and the same Babylon that burned the temple and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and exiled these people and made them slaves has been weakened itself as a nation to the point that they're defeated and occupied by another empire, a group of people called the Persians, people that you and I today call Iranians. And a Persian king, a man named Cyrus, begins to allow the Jews to return to their own homeland. You can find that story in the Old Testament book of Ezra. The first group to return is led by a man named Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel's first assignment is to lay the foundation for the new temple. But after laying that foundation, God's people get distracted. And so beginning around 520 B.C., a man probably in his mid to late 80s at this point begins to remind Israel of her priorities. That's Haggai. And the thrust of his message is enhanced because he doesn't just know this history, he lived it. I was there. 
I saw the former temple. I saw God's people worship there myself. There is, brothers and sisters, great value in that kind of gravitas being amidst, in, in our midst and, and amongst us. I say that this morning just by way of introduction because I'm just going to be honest. Older adults sometimes, in culture at large certainly, and even in the church, sometimes they get a bad rap. Have you noticed that? Sometimes they do. And, and can we just be honest with ourselves? Sometimes some of those people have earned that bad rap, right? I mean, I, I, when I was in seminary, I was told, if you want to initiate change in a church, all right, traditional kind of church that's been there for a long time, many of those people were there when you were still in diapers, and now they're calling you pastor, and you want to earn their respect. I mean, and I was, I was coached through, listen, this is, this is how you lead people through change. And along with that coaching came a warning. Your biggest impediment will be people over the age of 60. Well, I, I don't believe that anymore, actually. And I'll tell you why as we move through this together. Uh, that said, I also, though, understand why 25, 30 years ago, a seminary professor would have said something like that, all right? Because there's this bad rap, this, this sort of, you know, the, the older people are, ah, they're, they're just so resistant to change. They're kind of grumpy. It, it's, they utter phrases like, these kids these days, get off my lawn, and, you know, of course, the worst one was, you know, in my day, we did it this way. And so there's this perception that the older you are, that the more resistant you are to change, the more grumpy you get with people that don't see things the way you do. And, and can I be honest, those are not completely illegitimate concerns. Some of the most heartbreaking counseling sessions I've ever had with a pastor, as a pastor, is with, with extended family, people talking about their extended family. Now, I've had some joyous descriptions of extended family. Maybe parents are having a lot of trouble with their kid or they're going through a really hard time, and the grandparents on both sides are just being champions for that family. They're cheering on mom and dad. They're encouraging them. They're coaching them. They're giving them wise advice. But I have just as often been in that same room with parents who understand that the relationship now with the grandparents is a toxic one. Grandkids don't want to go to grandmas and grandpas. They don't want to do that. It's triggering to them. They're hypercritical. They're trying to run their parent, the, the parents' lives. They're, they're doing all their things. You could go really either way. And I'll be honest with you, even though I'm not really an old man yet, I'm starting to recognize some of that creeping up into my own heart. Probably because I'm married. And my wife told me once some time ago, you are going to be impossible when you're 80. And I said to her, depending on what I'm doing with bacon, I may not live that long. And she said, well, then the rest of the world might be protected from a few things, right? So we all got to be aware of that, that sort of tendency that's, that's coming up. When I, when I train church planners now, I think back to when I was sitting in their seat. I remember the first time as a 28-year-old young man sitting in front of a denominational board of guys that many of them could have been my grandparents, asking me these critical questions, looking at me as though I was some kind of weird kid because I, I had, yeah, what they thought were, were some strange ideas. And now I'm that older guy standing up training young men and some of the ideas they give me man they're just they just seem weird to me and here's what I've determined I have made the commitment that I am not going to be that guy okay I, I think that may be the biggest commitment we need to make as we age we're not going to be the hypercritical the world's going to hell in a handbasket I don't understand these kids I don't maybe we seek to understand and then we give advice after all isn't that what a great grandparent does 
You think about that for a minute. They're not trying to run the lives of their, their adult children. They're not being hypercritical all the time. They're not being mean and nasty to the point that grand, grandkids don't want to come over. They're the fun people. They're the fun people. My mother, God rest her soul, but if, if she were still alive, sitting right there, I would tell you this story today, okay? One of my children had an accident as like a, 18-month-old, on her living room carpet. And this same woman who threatened to take my life over a crunched Cheerio in the carpet looked at her grandson and said, oh, don't worry about that, baby. Mama will clean that right up. And I thought, who are you? <laughs> right? This is this is the difference, right? They're, they're, the, like, they're the fun, and they're the, they're the stability, and they're the place where you can always come, and they're the people who are the statesmen of the family. They give advice. Today, if you're over the age of 60, that's God's call for you. After the pattern of Haggai, to be a statesman, all right? Don't be grouchy and grumpy. Don't try to run everything. Don't be hypercritical of all the stuff you don't agree with. But be that elder statesman that can lead God's people and occasionally, like Haggai, can remind God's people when they've forgotten their priorities. Okay? See, this exhortation isn't merely to tell people of a certain age to be quiet. Haggai's prophecy reminds us the church of the living God needs desperately the experience that comes with decades of life. And on occasion, somebody's going to come along, a truly wise old man or wise old woman who leverages that experience, not to take us back to a time that's more comfortable to them, but to push us forward and out of our own present comfort. And nobody's more well-suited to this than someone to whom the Lord has given the very gray and white hair that Scripture tells us is a crown of glory. 520 B.C., Jerusalem, that man is Haggai. And he does this through four oracles that I want to cover with you in turn. Oracle 1 begins in chapter 1, verse 1, and it's a stern rebuke. Sometimes, you know, you, you shouldn't be hypercritical, but every once in a while you get, whoa, whoa, hang on just a minute. Sometimes it's good, especially in a, in a generation like ours in which there are so many lines that are being crossed and just erased out completely for an older generation to remind us there are actually lines. There is a right and there is a wrong, and I love you, but that's wrong. And one of the things we see here is that, that rebuke. He says in verse 1, you looked for much and behold, it, it, it became to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Haggai, speaking on behalf of the Lord, says this to Israel, you've become distracted. You've become enamored by your own comforts and pleasures, and the result is you've become the kind of people who don't finish what you start, and your God is enraged by your lack of execution. Well, that's a pretty stiff way to start a message, isn't it? Yeah, when it comes to the mission, by the way, that's still true. Congregations of people today get enamored with religious consumerism, whether or not something's going to be fun, the mission gets marginalized, and then the next thing you know, this hurting, decaying world that's in need of the very kingdom we were put here to extend and to reflect gets neglected. God is just as angry with that as is the old man Haggai. So, so Oracle 1 is a wake-up call. Hey, you are messing around. You are wandering. 
You are having fun. You are comfortable. You are not doing what God put you here to do. That's the wake-up call, Oracle 1. Oracle 2 is an encouragement. And again, this is the point that sometimes gets missed when you have a, a multi-generational church like ours where those who have lived longer forget. It's not just about rebuke. It's about pointing people, including the younger generation, toward a hope that, that still lies in all of our futures. In verse 7 of chapter 2, I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, the prophet says, I'm, I'm confronting your sloth and laziness and lethargy because it's preventing you from seeing what God has in store. It's preventing you from being a part of it. Next week, we look at Zechariah. Zechariah is a much younger contemporary of Haggai, but they, they prophesy at the same time. And Haggai, I mean, Zechariah is going to pull that curtain back even further to us and say, listen, that temple that you've neglected to build, that's where Messiah is going to appear. And he's for the whole world. And you, at this moment, have a, an historically strategic role to play. So Oracle 2 is encouragement. So, hey, get off your duff and start working. Here's why you need to work. God has placed you here now for a very specific purpose. Then Oracle 3. This one's a reminder that God's love for his people is not dependent on what they do. It's almost like Haggai says, get off your rear end and get to work. You're being lazy. You're being slothful. You're neglecting the Lord's work. You're neglecting the Lord's mission. Now, if you don't do that. If you will repent, here's the hope that I have for you. And then comes this. God loves you no matter what you do. Sometimes that has to be communicated as well. Verse 19 of chapter 2. Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Did you read that? You haven't accomplished a thing. But I still love you. Here's why. You're not merely on a staff. You're not merely my employees. You're my kids. You're my kids, and I love you. Anybody, don't raise your hand. Don't want any kids embarrassed. Don't want you feeling like you have to embarrass yourself or your children. But I would imagine I'm talking to some parents right now who may have some lazy kids at home. They sleep till the crack of noon. And I'm not just talking about on Saturday morning. I'm not talking about that occasional kind of sleep. But listen, kids at a certain age need a good night's sleep. They need eight, sometimes ten hours of sleep. Doctors will tell you that. I'm just talking about the ones that you know, when they get up, they go down to the basement. They do this. Hour, right? There's always that struggle. Right? How much am I? I don't want to discourage them. I don't want to tell them this thing is inherently evil. I do want to warn them about the fact that they're building habits that will follow them for the rest of their life. And, and I want them, eventually, I, I do want them out of the basement. But they're my kid. They're my kid. We got different ways of dealing with this. Now, I grew up in a different time. And so uh, there were a few times when I didn't get out of bed, and my dad would give me two warnings. And then on the third morning, I would feel something very cold and very wet. Somebody, that's abusive. I think I turned out okay. Just, just going to tell you. All right. I can't believe he, it didn't hurt me. It didn't bruise me. It didn't even really hurt my pride. It, it made me angry because I'm going to tell you something about wet sheets. You can't go back to bed on wet sheets. All right. So it accomplished two things. It woke my lazy butt up, and then it kept me from laying back down. 
So it worked, right? What are you doing? Never one single time did I even have a, an inkling of a thought of a fear that my father would ever put me out of the house because of that or that my father would disown me because of that. I knew he loved me. I knew that love was unconditional. I knew that that's what you're seeing here, right? He may, he may have told me several times in my teenage years, boy, get out of there, you're burning daylight. But he never threw me out in the cold. Haggai in this part of the prophecy reminds God's people, you know what? Your heavenly father loves you in this way also. I can't stand sloth. But the reason I can't stand it is because I love you and it's that sloth and laziness and lethargy and complacency that keeps you from the best that God has for you. So do you see how this follows the pattern? There's rebuke, there's encouragement, and then there's remember who you are. You're my children. All right, and then that brings us to Oracle 4, chapter 2, verse 20. This one is actually spoken back to Zerubbabel, that leader that I referenced earlier, the first group of of the returning exiles. He says, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheltiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, there's a lot of argument around this and how it fits with, not only within Haggai, but within the prophetic corpus. And the bulk of scholarship, though, examining this passage will connect it back to verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2. I'll just leave that to you to, to look at when you get home today. But it makes the claim that Zerubbabel, in leading the people to finally finish that second temple, would serve as a foreshadowing messianic figure who builds his own temple. And that temple is the people. Now that's, that's an important principle to remember when we ask how to apply a text like Haggai to our own lives. All right, because if, you, if you've ever been in a church where they started to put up another building and they either wanted you to give money so that they could do it debt-free or they wanted you to vote positively in a way that would allow them to go into debt in order to build that building, you might have on occasion heard a preacher get up before and go to Haggai to make his case for that. And as well-meaning as he might have been, he was dead wrong. Here's why. We don't have a temple any longer, and according to Hebrews 8, we ain't ever going to have a temple. Okay, so, so you got to do something with that. You got to do something with that. Here's, here's what the bulk of the scholarship will do. It will say that Haggai points beyond the issues and people of the moment. Okay, the temple is no longer a building. By the way, that's not just scholarly opinion. That's apostolic opinion. Look at these words from Paul in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So here's the big idea. Zerubbabel points to the Messiah, the temple points to the people. I get questions all the time sometimes about, about biblical prophecy and Pastor Joel, what do you think about that third temple? Well, let me tell you what I think about that third temple. I think I'm looking at it right now. I'm looking at it. Don't be looking over that little piece of dirt in the Middle East for something to be erected. I don't listen. Hey, listen, you, you can disagree with your pastor. It's fine. You'll be wrong, but you can do that. That's not a test of fellowship around here. 
But y'all pay me, at least on occasion, to tell you what I think a text says. And I'm telling you, this temple points to ultimately not another temple, but to the people of God. You and I don't have a temple. We don't need it. We are the temple. We are the temple. And that raises a question in light of Haggai's challenge to his own people. Are we spiritually lethargic about building the temple? And does that lethargy and sloth keep us from seeing all that God wants for us? That's the message that Haggai gives us that, that transcends his own time and own place. Because Haggai's message is about a literal temple. But God, through Haggai, is calling you and me all these years later to turn from sloth and turn toward obedience, reset our own spiritual priorities and he he calls us to that to bless us and through us to bless the world and so when the body of, of Christ is asleep and and complacent cares more about her own comforts than the mission she has fallen prey to what Paul warned Timothy about second Timothy 2 verse 4 he says to his young protege no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him there is a mission to accomplish there is a battle to be won there is a strategic goal to stay focused on and you ain't got time for shore leave that's Paul's word to Timothy Haggai's message helps us do that and so here's what I want to do in our final moments together I want to go back to chapter 2 uh, where, where we find the bulk of his teaching here and, and I want to find a I want us to see four steps to redeeming that mission and repenting of spiritual sloth to those of you who are older or consider yourselves older how can you encourage all of us toward this moment to those of you who are younger you're like you didn't use personal pronoun there Joel but well that's because I really have no idea where I am at this point really depends on who I'm talking to but here's the four steps step one face the world as a realist Isaiah 2 verse I mean Haggai, Haggai 2 verse 1 who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory. How do you see it now? And is it not as nothing in your eyes? This is nothing compared to what I saw. We may be, he says to the people here, in the same geographic location that we left 70 years ago, but this is now a very different place than it was 70 years ago, which makes it more important that we get this thing erected. At this point, they've been working on the temple rebuild for about 17 years, and Haggai says the results are disappointing you ever done a renovation on your home or maybe God God help you you were helping us around here and, and you got into a ceiling tile or you got into a wall and you thought who did that anybody yeah I, I read, very first church I ever pastored Muldrow Baptist Church, Muldrow, Kentucky, completely surrounded by Fort Knox. Love those, man, what wonderful people they are. They're looking for a pastor right now. Uh, be, be in prayer for them. They're just, they've made such a difference since the Lord put them there in 1927. Uh, but while I was pastor there, they wanted to renovate some bathrooms. And so, of course, church went through all the processes and laid the money aside and everything else. And so they went to tear everything out in the old bathrooms. And when they tore out the ceiling tile, I looked up and there was copper piping that was feeding the plumbing for the toilets in the men's bathroom, I swear to you, it looked like a plate of spaghetti. It was just all like, I said, what happened? 
I mean, I'm not the guy you want plumbing, believe me. But even I can look at that and go, man, that's messed up. And, and, and my, my building and grounds committee chairman just looked at me and he went, volunteers. <laughs> Built with amateurs. Hey, we saved a lot of money, but look at that, right? That's effectively what's happening here. Haggai's going, look at that. Look, look, does anybody even take pride in that anymore? I, I tell our facility staff all the time, I, I love, here's two things I expect. Number one is when you come in here on Sunday morning, this building should be pristine because Jesus is worthy of it and because our guests need to have communicated to them that we actually care. And I've, I've, I've told our facility staff before, I said, all right, look, look at that. Before they clean it, they're, they're studious, they're, they're hardworking people. But I, all right, look, look at that toilet. If we leave that toilet that way, look at that mirror. If we leave that mirror that way, look at that sink. I mean, one shot of Windex and wipe it down. Five seconds and you just made a 100% improvement on that thing. But if you leave it that way, what are people going to think? And they've learned. They look at me and go, they're going to think we don't care. Right? There's something about being called to a, a higher standard here. And that's what Haggai's doing. The results are disappointing. And his benchmark for this is the old temple. I mean, when we look back to compare ourselves with prior generations, it's not for the purpose of becoming just like the past age, and it's not for the purpose of pining for a past age. But sometimes that's a great way to take stock of our own reality. It's not a bad thing occasionally to look at a prior generation and you go, what? you know what, we may not go back to this, we may not go back to that, but man, this and this and that, they got right. And when the old men are calling us out with charges that stick, that's indicting. I had an Uncle Melvin when I was 16, 17 years old, he called me, he said, I've got some trees I need to cut down, i got some brush I need to clear, I, can, can you come over on a, on a certain Saturday? And I said, sure, I can do that, I borrowed my dad's truck, borrowed my dad's chainsaw, w drove over, when I'm getting everything ready, I'm getting the chainsaw fueled up, here comes my Uncle Melvin out on his back porch with an axe. And I thought, that man's insane, he, he should be doing this the easy way. Three hours later, I'd taken three 10-minute breaks, and my Uncle Melvin had not stopped. He wore my butt out with that axe. He said, that's a picture of the old man showing up the young man. That's not always a bad thing, guys. That's really not. Sometimes that's motivating. It's why some of you don't work out alone and you recognize, hey, when I run in groups or when I, when I go to, to Planet Fitness with a friend, like I get more done. If nothing else, I just want it, to, it's, it's all the stuff. Maybe it's just male pride, but it still helps you get done. I went deep sea fishing about a year ago with a member of this congregation. We got out in the Atlantic and the swells were out there and I'm just like, I'm, I'm like, but I, I don't want to say anything. And I don't think I'm turning green yet. And I don't want to give anything away. And finally, he looked at me and he goes, you know, these swells are making me a little nauseous. Maybe we ought to go inland a little bit more. And I said, well, if, it, you know, if it's hurting you, I don't mind so much. Um, what is that? That's two guys sizing. That's not always a bad thing, is it? We push each other to get better. We push each other to persevere. And Haggai does that by helping us face the world, okay? 
That can happen spiritually. Let me ask our older saints in this building. Not do you know what to say. Not have you got it all figured out, because that, that's not even the point. Is your own walk with God, is your own building of your own temple the kind that could intimidate the rest of us? Or are you just grumpy? Which is it? To the younger of us, are you willing to be challenged in any way to be better because of what God's Word is teaching here? We need a good dose of realism in the modern church. We do. Y'all have heard me say this before. Too many churches, too many church growth strategies, too many church planting strategies are based in this idea that everybody's supposed to have fun, everybody's always supposed to have a wonderful time, everybody's supposed to be on cloud nine. It's supposed to be like Disney with a cross on it every single Sunday. That's not real. That's not real. So face the world as a realist. Step two, face the culture with courage. Verse four, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Does any of this sound familiar? Three times that word, be strong. It should if you know your Bible well. It's a word that God spoke to Moses. It's a word that God would later speak to Joshua. And here, three distinct calls of basically God through his prophet telling his people, it's time for you all to harden up. That's not an easy thing, especially in a church culture that encourages comfort. Comfort. We look down our nose at you if you're gay, but not if you're lazy. What does that say about us? Huh? In fact, the, the lazy thing sometimes even gets rewarded because we've so defined Christian behavior in terms of what you shouldn't do instead of what you should. So, well, he never gets anything done. He's not really all that reliable, but he's a good Christian boy. No, he's not. Not if he never gets anything done. Not if he's not reliable. What are we doing here? Face the future with courage. Tim Keller put it this, this way years ago, but it, just describing our comfort. Like, what, why is it that the, the, the Western church seems so comfortable? I know, I know it's an easy thing to do, but, but why do we perpetuate that? And Keller just went to be with Jesus a few weeks ago. He now sees him fully face to face. This was his quote in response to that. This is the first generation that does not long for the return of Christ. Why? Because we have everything. We have everything. So the prophet says, it's time to go to work. And the verb here isn't about mere activity. It's efficiency, if you look at this in Hebrew. So apparently, God's definition of work is exactly the same as the scientific definition of work. You actually have to get something accomplished. We live in a day where all the programming and staffing and campuses are abuzz with activity, and it makes it look like we're doing something worthwhile. But what if there's no transformation in the community? What if there's no real substantive transformation in our own lives? We just work ourselves to death to execute the program. What kind of difference are you making? That's one of the most frightening questions you can ask a church staff, by the way. And I ask it all the time. When I first got here, it scared the daylights out of people. Everything that was going on on here, I'm like, what's that accomplishing? And it took me two years sometimes to get hard data out of people. Why? Because they were afraid. 
because they were afraid. Haggai says we need courage to face the future together. Don't be afraid of the question. Welcome it. Listen, I, if I love Jesus, if he has changed my heart and soul, if I really am a new creature in Christ and the old has passed away, all things have become new. I don't want to face him having accomplished nothing. My heart's desire. And so at the, at the heart of, of what I do should be, what difference am I making? What difference are we making? What, don't be afraid of that question because the Lord says if you turn from sloth to obedience, you actually begin to take stock of, of what's being accomplished, I will be with you. I'll be with you. So, some people are afraid to get out of bed. Some people are afraid to try something new. Some people are afraid to change a practice. Some people are afraid to honestly assess their lives. The Lord says, I'm with you. I'm never going to punish you about just being honest about yourself and, and your efforts. Have courage. Then comes step three. Work with the confidence of God's presence. We see that in verses 5 to 8 of chapter 2. And there's a couple of things that we notice here. The first thing we notice is God has a track record. Look at verse 5. According to the covenant I made with you when I came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. You can do this, Israel, because of the same spirit of mine that was with you then is with you now. So God's got a track record. Secondly, God has resources. Look at verse 7. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. Now that's quite a principle. It's hard to struggle. Whoa, whoa, whoa. God's using pagan money? Yeah. Somebody asked Dwight L. Moody once, would you accept tithes and offerings if, if they came from revenue from somebody winning at gambling? And Dale Moody didn't blink an eye. He said, sure I would. The devil's had it long enough. Yeah. I will shake the nations. I will get this done. I, you, you guys, if you've been around here for a while, you, you've heard the testimony. I mean, God's just done such amazing things in the world. My Muslim friends have paid for me to go to places in the world to tell other people about my faith. How's that happen? Yeah, we got to have the faith to step out. Lord says, I'm with you. I have a track record, and I have resources. You know, well, no, well, not over there. No, 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 no. Those are mine. Those, those are mine. Sometimes people don't step out because they're afraid there won't be enough help or there won't be enough resources. Uh, and sometimes, just speaking to covenant for a moment, okay? Sometimes we don't step out because we have an overblown sense of what we're actually going to need. Okay. If we have a besetting sin as a church family that goes back probably almost to our inception, it is that we could overcomplicate a dead gum two-car parade. We, we could. Every ministry's got to have lights, it's got to have sound, it's got to have it's got to be staffed with this, it's got to be motivated by that. Listen, nine times out of ten, you know what you need? You need people who love other people. That's it. That's it. Okay, everything in this church doesn't have to look like this. The most significant moments of transformation in a church are not happening now. They're happening in those moments in the dark with no TV cameras and no microphones and no 
expressive worship. And no, it's just people that love other people walking alongside other people. But, but you know what? Even when large resources are needed, people sometimes will give up before they even start. You, you refuse to join up because it's going to be hard. Well, of course it's going to be hard. In a world of polarization and cultural and religious isolation, it's hard to do stuff with Jews and Muslims like we're doing. But it's necessary. It's hard to go to a place on the other side of the world that doesn't share your understanding of civil society. It's hard to serve in our local communities and hear those hard stories and sometimes not even know exactly what we can do to help tangibly with that. It's not easy. It's not always a lot of fun. Haggai's here reminding his people not only to stop being lazy when faced with a challenge, but to face every challenge with confidence because we're serving the same God that David had in his presence when he killed Goliath and the same God that Moses had when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea and the same God the apostles had when they took this strange little sect called the Way and they covered the Western world with that message in under 70 years. Work with confidence. And then finally, step four, point to Christ with passion. Chapter 2, verse 9, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. Now, how can he say that? Because, again, we know the end of the story was this temple wasn't really anywhere near what Solomon's temple was. Well, it's like I said before, all that passed away. All that was made obsolete. Go read Hebrews 8. It's right there. It's in plain sight for you. All that's gone, ain't none of it coming back because ain't none of it needed. I'm looking at the temple and its glory is greater. Did you get that? As the church of the living God, you and I possess a glory greater than the temple of Solomon. That's what Haggai's saying. That temple is a symbol of the end of redemptive history. It's a time when shalom the glory of God displayed in, among all nations and peoples, and they bow to that glory, and the result is the perpetual, constant presence of justice and love and wholeness and welfare of all humanity. Paul will refer to that symbol in, in 1 Corinthians 3. It's the new community, he said, the focal point of God's saving work in the world. And 2,500 years after these words are written, I'm looking at its fulfillment right now. It's us. So the question is this, the question that Haggai filtered through those various covenants is asking you and me today, will we actually step out and embody that fulfillment? Will we do it? Or will we allow spiritual sloth, worldly distraction, a penchant for comfort and predictability, religious consumerism, and complacency rob us of every opportunity that God is putting in front of us right now? All of us invest our time, our money, and our talent in the things that we value the most. The, the word for that is intrinsic motivation. Intrinsic motivation. Okay? It's, it's like the kid who, who got fired and couldn't understand why he got fired because he had told his boss that, you know, if I'm, if I'm not there, if I'm 15, 20 minutes late, I'm probably still asleep. Just call me took some of you a few minutes, and some of you are still going, well, what's wrong with that? Yeah, uh-huh, yeah. Intrinsic motivation is I don't need a boss or a parent. I don't need a dad throwing cold water. I don't, I'm up. I'm up. Real intrinsic motivation, I don't even need a clock. 
I'm up. Okay? Thanksgiving week, first Monday, 5 o'clock, Joel Rainey's up. I got my 308 ready to go. It's the first day of buck rifle season. All right? And some of y'all are like, you do that and instead of staying in bed? See, see what I'm saying? Like time, money, effort goes into what we personally value. Some of you don't value that. That's okay. That's all right. What is that intrinsic motivation, though? What's that thing gets you up in the morning? What's that thing you don't need an alarm clock for? Haggai says you need to get your heart in such a place that that thing becomes the glory of God. And that this passion motivates us more than anything else to get to work. Or as someone who was on a diet one time and lost about 30 pounds and, and she, she was great. She got, she got healthy and it was wonderful. And I remember asking this dear sister, I said, how'd you do it? She said, I had to make up my mind that skinny feels better than chocolate tastes. I had to change one set of priorities for another one. Okay. And once I did that, and once I started focusing on that, my friend Micah Fries actually wrote a commentary on this prophet about eight years ago. And toward the end of that commentary, he uttered this reminder. And I thought, man, this is, this is a great way to end this message. Haggai is an anomaly among the minor prophets in this way. The other 11, when they preached, God's people ignored it. How'd you like that job? All right, go and speak. Nobody else is ever going to listen. In every other prophecy in the Minor Prophets, God ignored, God's people ignored the messenger. They faced sad consequences. They were conquered. They lost their spiritual vibrancy. They were sent into exile. Haggai is the lone old man whose message was heeded. And we have the happy results of that recorded for us in Scripture. Look at these words in Ezra chapter 6 beginning in verse 15, and this house was finished. On the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king, and the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. I'm telling you 2,600 years later, standing in this here spot, that can be you. That can be us. But it requires putting God's priorities ahead of our own. It requires fighting ambivalence toward what he is doing in the world. It requires it, repenting of our spiritual sloth and laziness and getting to work on the mission together. I just wonder who in front of me wants to really be a part of that. What gets you up in the morning? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the call of an older man who loves God's people enough to tell them the truth, who loves God's people enough to encourage them, who loves God's people enough to put a grand vision in front of them, who loves God's people enough to remind them of who they are. And Lord, we recognize all of that is just simply a reflection of your own heart. So I pray for all of us today, no matter what decade of life we may find ourselves in, may we be a people who when we speak and when we encourage and when we rebuke and, and, and when we speak, and live life alongside of others, we would do so reflecting your heart, Lord. Draw us so close to you that the people around us can't tell the difference. And Lord, may you awaken 
many people from spiritual slumber and lethargy as a result. May today be the day that they look back on and say, this was the day. This was the day when I got my priorities straight. And Father, whatever you're going to do with your people in these next few moments, we ask your Holy Spirit to come. We ask you to, to be sovereign in this place, to do your work as you will. And we thank you for this opportunity in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.